0: This is Alex. I'm from Boston.
1: Hello, this is Jackie, and I'm from Houston. Hey, this is Rahul from Stanford. And we are the Premier chefs All right, guys. Thank God it's Friday. Uh, it's been a long week. Uh, we've already had an episode earlier this week, uh, but we're back here with our friend Ben Jacobs. Uh, ben, welcome back, and it's good to see you again.
0: Yeah, great to see you as well. Yet again, window shuts, busy week for Chelsea, full of drama, just when we thought it might be quiet during the international break.
1: Yeah, every time I talk to you, I'm like, okay, I think it's going to be a few weeks until there's going to be a next update or something to talk about, um, and it's very fast that we come back and have things to talk about, which is good because I enjoy talking to you, but... um We'll we'll get into that. That's one of my questions for you today about Chelsea and everything coming out of them. But uh, let's get started on the sporting director. Uh, The last time we spoke, we touched on a few names. Christoph Freund was one of those names. And uh, earlier this week was reported that he had agreed, I guess, with Chelsea in in principle, uh, you know, to take over that position. But nothing had been agreed with Salzburg. And I think Uh, that's the key here is it was he was interested but he obviously had to have talks with Salzburg Chelsea had to approach Salzburg Um, what can you share with us whether that breakdown happened ultimately he decided to stay which is uh, which is totally up to him and his decision Uh, and who's next on that list I know we keep talking about uh, Paul Mitchell Mm -hmm. and I've seen a lot of fans say just give him what he wants let's wait for him Uh, but I think our project is a little more focused on getting someone in sooner. Yeah,
0: I think with Paul Mitchell, he can come in sooner, but Michael Edwards, if he's the number one choice, will be the one that perhaps Chelsea might be tempted to wait for if they keep failing to land targets. With Christoph Freund, he remains at Salzburg, as per a statement that they gave to me a few days ago now, and then 24 hours later, they made a public statement, basically saying that everything was finalised, and he definitely wouldn't be leaving. And Chelsea, very surprised by this, because if we go back to Saturday and Sunday, they'd had a second round of talks with Freund. They had a verbal agreement with him and they thought that the deal was done and they firmly believed that they would be able to have a dialogue with Salzburg that would result in him becoming Chelsea's next sporting director. There's a few reasons why the deal broke down. One is that Todd Bowley... And it's important to note this, is looking to build a model in the long term, which is multi-club based. And he's naturally very impressed by the Red Bull group. And there'll be aspects of it that he would like to bring to Chelsea. But to build that model, you're going to need more than one name and expert. And even Freund, despite his eye for talent, is not necessarily a model builder. He's someone that's worked successfully within the Red Bull model. But if you were looking for somebody to actually strategize and build it, then you're going to have to go more senior. So Ralph Raniak ultimately is the kind of person that built the Red Bull model. And then Luis Campos may have ideas about different types of models. And then if it is to be determined that Chelsea want more of a city group philosophy, at least behind the scenes, even if the recruitment model isn't identical to it, then Tom Glick, who's already been employed, is going to be very influential in that. And I think that Salzburg sensed that if Freund came, he wouldn't be the only one. And that was one aspect. And then the second part of this is that Freund ultimately went back to Salzburg and was told about his importance to the group. And this is one of the advantages of having a group, that you have that ability to say to someone at Salzburg, Here's your path. And if we look at players, Benjamin Sesko could have gone to Manchester United. Chelsea were interested as well. In fact, the conversations around Sesko were what led to Todd Bowley being very impressed by Freud. And instead, Sesko sees this pathway and says, no, I don't want to jump straight to the Premier League. I'll go Salzburg. Wait in a year's time. Leipzig. And then I know that eventually they'll let me leave. And it's exactly the same with Freund in many ways. He's been given a clear pathway by Salzburg, and he sees that as very valuable to his career. So he effectively U-turned on his desire to join Chelsea. But make no mistake, there was a verbal agreement in place as of Sunday night. And then the other aspect which made it problematic, as I understand it anyway, is that Freund signed a new deal with Salzburg for four years over the summer. And that deal specifically does not have a financial exit clause in the next window. And I don't even think for the next year. So the earliest that a club could come along and just buy Freund out of his contract with a specific number or a clause that allows him to negotiate would be effectively this time next year. And therefore, if anyone wants him now it's a very problematic and probably expensive discussion. So a number of different factors, therefore, are at play. Salzburg could always play hard ball because he'd only just signed. And then Freud ultimately wasn't just going to Salzburg and saying, oh, OK, you're not going to let me leave. He was persuaded by Salzburg after he'd already agreed personal terms with Chelsea to stay at Salzburg. And Chelsea, from that perspective, I think, were a little bit surprised. They feel like the lure of their club and Premier League and what they're trying to build would have been enough. But they still did not at any point agree exit terms with Salzburg. So even if Freund stuck to his guns and said he wanted the job, Salzburg were always going to play hard ball because contractually they were in the strongest possible position. And then in terms of other names, it's not back to square one because concurrent with Freund and Michael Edwards before that, a number of names have been on the radar, which I think is good and bad because on the one hand, it tells you that work is being done to get somebody in for January. But on the other hand, the variety of names still suggest that Chelsea have not fixed how to build the best possible model, which I think is indicative of the fact that the sporting director that comes in will have a say, but also advisors may be needed because if you go with Michael Edwards, you're going to be more akin in all likelihood to a Liverpool model, very data-driven, very sustainable. If you go down the Citigroup route, then you'll be multi-club, but you're not afraid to spend big. If you go down the Red Bull model, you're looking for young talents. And I think that Bowley sees that as the most viable and sustainable and the ones that fail even can still be sold for a profit. And that all adds up and allows you to buy more established talent. And then the ones that come through become value because you bought them for comparatively nothing. And then when they explode onto the world scene, they're a 100 or 200 million pound players. So that's the kind of mentality, very youth led, very data led. And when you look at the names, that's not Lewis Campos. Even though, I suppose, to an extent at PSG, his remit is to look at young French talents. But historically, that's not necessarily his bag. And because he's freelance and an advisor, he's not there to build the model. He's there to guide in the right direction and to get his hands dirty. But you're not necessarily going to get 10 years of exclusive loyalty out of him. And then Monchi at Sevilla is the latest name that has come into the equation. And I think this is really telling because there's not much substance in that at the moment. There's no indication that Monchi wants to leave at this point in time, but the Premier League has always been a destination that he's been linked with. Manchester United also thought about making an approach for him a few years back as well. But the common ground in all these names, predominantly anyway, is Boley having direct conversations and they're either recommended or he stumbled across them during the window. So with Freund, he crossed paths. With Monchi over Jules Kunde, he crossed paths. And then with Campos, he was introduced and they held a conversation. And with Freund, Cesco conversations led to them getting to know each other a bit better. With Graham Potter, it was through talks with Paul Barber. So this is natural because when you meet people, you develop an impression and then why wouldn't you go to them? But I think that there needs to be a clear, and don't get me wrong, there might well be within Chelsea, there needs to be a very clear plan first as to what the model is. So not just the who, because a Freund doesn't build your model. That's not his area of experience. A Freund operates within your model so if you don't have the model first, then throwing as a name has freedom, but no direction. So there's got to be somebody else at that football club saying either you have to step up and tell us the model or we have to build the model around you. And there's still not quite that clarity yet externally, but internally, of course, they are either keeping that a secret or they know exactly in what direction they're heading in and they'll reveal it a bit further down the line. But is the model going to be instantly multi-club? Is it going to be multi-club based upon purchasing other clubs, such as in Brazil or Portugal? Or is it going to be more through partnerships? And thus, by nature, it is a model. But by name, it's not quite like the Citigroup, because all of these partnerships will technically be independent, but with some kind of formalisation through partnerships. And how quick is it going to happen And are Chelsea looking at particular regions, as I've just mentioned, like Brazil or Portugal, and how many tiers do they want if they go down the multi-club model, and how quickly can they establish that? Are they going to go sporting director, technical director? Are they going to go sporting director, advisor? And this is all up in the air, which is normal, because the new ownership group have only really been in for a couple of months. But I think that's just important, because at the moment, from the outside in, it looks like Chelsea are looking at candidate A and it's a Liverpool model. Then looking at candidate B and it's a Red Bull model. Then their president of business is from the City group and a lot of their backroom staff are from the City group. And we know that Todd Bowley also likes the City group. And then at the same time, Monchi comes out the blue or Paul Mitchell comes out the blue. And yet yeah, Mitchell worked within the Red Bull group as well, but he's perhaps not as data-driven as Freud. So I don't see that many similarities between the shortlisted candidates, which is not a bad thing because your sporting director can have more of a rigid, defined role and they can shape it. And ultimately they're looking to fulfil signings to the long-term benefit of the club via youth, but also in a shorter term to the first team at elite level. So if they've got a good eye for talent, if they're going to be part of the negotiation process, that's all fine. Things will work. But I come back again to that one nagging, I don't want to say doubts because it's unfair to be too critical when we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. But when I look at the sporting director candidates in their own entity, there's a lot of them and there's not that many similarities. You can't get much different between Lewis Campos and Michael Edwards or Christoph Freund and Monchi. And that is my only worry that it looks a little bit like after missing out on Edwards, they go for Freund. After missing out on Freund, they go for someone else. And if that somebody else isn't from a data Red Bull mentality, then my question to the ownership group would be Does that change their model and their line of thinking? And their answer is probably, Well, no, because we're still determining and building the model. And then my counterpoint to that would be I believe though my opinion is ultimately worthless, but I believe, speaking to people within the game who know a lot more than me, that it is more highly preferable to have the model locked in and then recruit within it than recruit and then build the model around what you've got.
1: Yeah, and that's fair, right? I, I tend to agree with that is they need to identify and hopefully they have internally uh, like you said, and, and it's good that it's not out in the public, because that's one of the things I I do mm. want to talk to you about is how much is out in the public. But uh, hopefully they do identify internally what they want to do and how they want to go about it. And like you mentioned, the names all have different characteristics, different approaches. Uh, but hopefully they can identify one that fits within what they want to do so that they can, like you said, maybe his role is more defined to to the sporting director and using his, uh, strengths to identify talent, bring in talent, whatever it is. Um, but Ben, on the point of how much is out in the public, right? I, I, I know, uh, in the transfer window with players, there's always stories. There's always links. There's always rumors. Um, but as a Chelsea fan, I open Twitter, I open the internet every day, social media, and there's, a new story about something going on within the club. It was Christoph Freund earlier this week. Uh, there's a Pulisic quote out there that I also want to touch on. The Tuchel news that was coming out the week before. There just seems to be something going on and it's always out in the public. Uh, my view is, and maybe that's just, you know, my cultural upbringing and the way things were done. Um, Kind of do what you want in the background. Once you're ready to let people know, let them know. Uh, but why is there so much news about Chelsea? And, and I enjoy talking <laughs> to you about it, right? And I, I, I appreciate your perspective and what you bring to it and, and what you share about it. But I just want like one quiet week at Chelsea where we're just focused <laughs> on, on what happens on the pitch.
0: I think it's a fair point. The contrast between the Abramovich era and now is huge. And that is possibly why a lot of Chelsea fans feel like they're in the news constantly because under Abramovich, it was a closed shop and you couldn't have two more different owners. Abramovich won a ton of trophies, but never did media or briefings, nor did Marina or Bruce Buck. Whereas the new ownership group are not only hands-on, but they have been forced to some extent to engage with the media during the sale process. And the reason for that is because they were pitching to buy a football club. Now it's a little bit different. And I don't think that they want things out there, but as a journalist, we're not going and asking for stuff that they want out there. We are reporting and investigating based on a variety of sources. So naturally with any story, and I'm talking generally now, sometimes a senior official at a football club might come to you and say, I would like this out there. And at that point you will take that and you will digest it. And you'll determine whether you need to go to any other sources or perspectives or whether it's cold, hard fact. Sometimes it is because you get sent documentation or it's an indisputable number. At other times it's just one side and then you need to go to the other side But beyond that, when you have so much change at a football club, you have a number of different voices that either have a side to tell or as a journalist, you're just able to delve and find the information. So I think that there's two points here. One is that things will calm down because the new ownership group have only been in for a matter of months. So we're still dealing with the storm for want of a better word, of sanctions to sale to board upheaval to manager sacking and all of the aftermath plus a transfer window. And each of these things individually, let alone together, would be quite hard to keep out of the public domain. And an example of that is a managerial sacking because Thomas Tuchel is still there in London and will inevitably want to talk about this at some point in more detail. And the club can't stop that. And by the same token, the new owners are intent on it being clear what their position is, which is why Todd Bowley spoke about it in a conference in New York to make sure that firsthand people heard his and the ownership group's side, which was effectively a clash of philosophies. And they're learning as they go, because they're going to get caught in the media, much like when Todd Boley was in Barcelona. They're going to get doorstepped at times, even by fans. The glare is there for all to see. And that's what you get when you buy a football club for effectively over £4 billion. Of course, the actual sale price is a lot lower than that, but the committed investment takes it to that large amount. And then when you spend this amount of money and you're meeting agents for the first time, everyone will relay a perspective somewhere. And I think that's why we're seeing so much news because when you're operating as the controlling influence at the club in Todd Bowley, when you're at Cobham day on day, when you're the chairman, when you're the interim sporting director and you're a minority owner, there's a lot of hats. So then when you're hands-on and you're interacting, you're going to be asked about a variety of things, whereas nobody had the chance to talk to Abramovich about strategy, about board upheaval and so on. But Todd Bowley will be relaying information, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, but just because of the amount of roles that he's undertaking at the moment and the upheaval. And then similarly, they're recruiting a lot of new people and those that have been at the club for a while that were affiliated to the old regime are leaving as well and having conversations. And I'm not saying that everyone's going to the media, by the way. I'm just saying that there is a lot going on. And at any club, in a window, it's hard to hide things because eventually it seeps out somewhere. It's not always intentional. Sometimes it's good journalism. Sometimes it's a source wanting to speak on record. Sometimes it's a source wanting to speak off record. And sometimes it's a tip-off. But fundamentally, so much has happened at Chelsea that you can't keep it under wraps. But now, for example, the sale is done. The board upheaval is done. The new chairman is final. A new sporting director is incoming. Thomas Tuchel has been sacked. The season has started and Graham Potter is in. There's not necessarily a great deal more that's going to come out week on week on week because that that I've just mentioned is six or seven stories. So it almost evens out as one a week. And because they're also big and the whole transfer window is 24-7 anyway, I think it feels like Chelsea's in the news every day. And then naturally there'll be media that want to jump on certain things like the All-Star game comments. And that's not necessarily negative. It's just a reflection of the fact that certain media and individuals in the game feel like football is becoming very Americanized, and Todd Bowley is becoming the scapegoat for that. And it doesn't really matter if you like the idea or loathe the idea. It's more about the fact that Bowley is new and has had the idea. And I think that's what perhaps is so atypical about Chelsea at the moment, that the ownership group are moving so fast and they're ambitious, but with that comes no back record. So I think if Bowley was saying or doing these things in a year... Even if he didn't like the idea, it would be very difficult to call it somebody running before they can walk. It would just be an owner of a football club having paid over four billion, speaking about his football club having been in there for a year. And if anything, by that stage, Boley, by being interim sporting director, has got a perspective that no other owner in the Premier League will have. So he has more information arguably to talk when most owners talk about players eyebrows are raised because you say what do you know how active are you involved in this process but Boley will have a- actually been the interim sporting director but right now and I'm sure Chelsea fans share this frustration it feels like he's talking and running within a three-month period of upheaval and there may be a necessity because they need the staff They need the change. They want to move quickly. They're aware that the window was obviously shutting when it shut. And they needed to swoop quickly because they didn't believe that Thomas Tuchel was the right man for the job. And Chelsea fans may dispute that. Tuchel may dispute that. There's two sides to every story. I personally have got huge respect for Thomas Tuchel. But from the perspective of the ownership group, they will argue that they've had to move, appoint, sign, have upheaval, then find a new manager... And when you add all of that up, you can't keep it under wraps. So it's not just someone new at the club or a member of the ownership group suddenly going, we're at Chelsea now, we're going to make friends with all the journalists, we're going to be calling and WhatsApping them 24-7 and we're going to tell them every little thing that we know because we want all of our moves out there. It's the opposite. I would imagine that the vast majority of the ownership group were highly disappointed that Froese name got out there i think they would have loved the campus red herring and then just to announce throwing out the blue and say look we can do business quietly but for whatever reason good journalism or leaks within the club unbeknown to them or sources that maybe predate them or just simply conversations that they are having with people and not realising how far and wide they will go, because they may be prepared at times to talk off record and know that that will get in the media. As a journalist, by the way, you're not there to trip anybody up. So we're not having a conversation with anybody that we know to be fully off record and then putting it out there. So much of what you do in journalism and you know in journalism is about respecting your source and not putting out information. And you will often know a lot more than you publish for that very reason, because it's not worth burning your bridge and you have to show respect to a source. But there are times when you get given information, whether on or off record, and then you're fully entitled either through that method or just through good investigative journalism of finding the information and standing it up yourself of publishing it. So I think fans have to live with that paradox because every single day on Twitter, I get told, why are you reporting on that? Why can't you keep that under wraps? Why all the Chelsea news? And then in the same breath from another hundred accounts, you get, can I have an update on this? Can I have (laughs) an update on that? So there's an appetite for it, which is ultimately why we're in a job still. So I think the short answer to why there's so much news out there is because it's huge upheaval at the club. And I don't think any club would have the ability to hide all of its news. But naturally, as the new ownership group beds in, they'll find a way in a system of, I would imagine anyway, and if it was me, this is what I would do, of tightening up the ship a little bit.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely needs to be tightened up. And and my question wasn't to question, um, you know, your job or what you've been, been providing. I, I We really appreciate it. And actually, just listening to you share a different perspective of it right as a fan i'm i'm connected to chelsea i i want to see them succeed i want them to to do it uh, in a more private manner. but you're right they came in in a transfer window which is always going to be uh links are going to be out there there's going to be news out there the other thing you mentioned was people mm-hmm. that that are moving on from the club may tend to share some things out there in the public domain and they, they may make their way over uh, as news so uh, i appreciate the different perspective man and and of course Hopefully over the next few weeks, when the games are back, the focus will move towards mm-hmm. what's happening on the pitch versus the last few weeks where we haven't played. So there has to be something else uh, that needs to needs to come out and, and gets highlighted a little bit more versus what happens on the pitch. So I really appreciate that. Uh, ben, as someone that lives in London, obviously uh, from, from the U.S. originally, uh, I'm sure you're a Christian Pulisic fan. You've, you've followed his mm-hmm. journey so far. Uh, no pun intended there. Uh, but he's about to publish a book or he is going to release a book next month. There was a quote that came out of it earlier this week, uh, something about Thomas Tuchel and being dumbfounded and and disappointed that he was not picked for the second leg uh, versus Real Madrid. Again, a fan perspective, right, is Pulisic has been in and out of the news, in and out of the team, too. Uh, for multiple reasons injuries not being picked by Tuchel we've questioned that here on the podcast Um, but coming out with this quote at this point of the season this point of the international break of course ahead of the world cup which we know is one of the the drivers for releasing this book Mm. if Thomas Tuchel was still in this job of course Pulisic didn't know he was going to be fired if Thomas Tuchel was still in this job and these quotes come out that just causes more tension, I believe, more drama internally. It's almost like the Lukaku situation for me because you're you're coming out and speaking against a magic. Of course, he's not there now. It changes the things. Maybe Potter sees it in a way too because uh, he's going to wonder if Pulisic is going to talk about him in the next version of this book. What have you made of these quotes and, and what side of the argument do you fall on? Because a lot of fans are wondering why he's even done a book. He's 22, mm-hmm. 23, 24 maybe Yes, the journey has been exceptional so far, but there's still a lot more to go, a lot more to achieve in life. Why do this book uh, is the first kind of question I have. Uh, and then if you do it, why openly question your manager uh, when he a, could have been in this job still and b now your next manager is going to wonder about what you may say about him to, in in the public domain?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't understand the book. It's as simple as that or the timing of it, as you correctly say, at the point when the book is effectively finished, Christian Pulisic has to assume that Thomas Tuchel is going to be his manager. And then by publishing these comments, it instantly would have created a frosty relationship between manager and player. And therefore, either Pulisic will have felt and still may that his future after January is not at Chelsea, so he doesn't care. And it's just an extra thing that helps drive him out of the football club where he's not currently 100% happy. Or alternatively, if that's not his line of thinking, then you have to ask whether the book is just about drumming up World Cup publicity and benefiting commercially. And then I still don't see any logic because, as you say, he's young and a book charting the journey effectively from missing out on a World Cup to qualifying for a World Cup and then winning a Champions League with Chelsea. Brilliant, but so much more to come in his career. Why release it now? And what are we actually going to learn about him beyond a few of these jibes and hopefully beyond the sort of personal upbringing and football development? But that type of story can be told later in a career as well. And ultimately, if you want to release it now, why not just wait until February or March and then have the World Cup factored into it as well and I get to some extent that qualifying for a world cup it is a nice happy ending whereas if they don't do well at the world cup or he's injured during the world cup then you have more of an anti-climax of an ending but nonetheless I'm a bit baffled by it I'm not a fan generally of people writing autobiographies or tell alls or even if it's not a tell-all, just insight-based books so early in their career. And he probably would maintain that the title doesn't make it out to be definitive. It's called My Journey So Far. But I'm just not that interested by his journey so far. Now, maybe in a World Cup year, maybe in a US audience, maybe it's Chelsea fans, maybe because there is this rift with Tuchel, people will buy and read the book. So if you look at the sales... I'm in the minority. But it's not something that leaps off the page to me. I don't think it carries a lot of insight or class doing it this way. I think that you play your career out through all the highs and lows to a certain point far older than Pulisic currently is. And that is what gives you the perspective. And then if you want to write something, you do so. And it gives people a chance to relive the earlier part of your career or your whole career. But this just feels to me like a badly advised venture. And I think when you speak to people in the game, they all say the same thing about Christian, which is he's a great guy, he's humble, he's quite shy, he carries a lot of weight on his shoulders, and he's got a lot of potential. Then when they talk about the team around him, There's a lot of people that say the same thing, which is he could be better advised. And the agent is not the easiest to negotiate with by all accounts. And in case the representatives of Pulisic are listening, I don't mean that as a criticism necessarily. I just mean they're very tough. And sometimes you have to be. So they've certainly got their clients back. But this just makes no sense to me. And he's lucky in many ways that two colours gone because it stops that, as you correctly say, Lukaku potential dynamic festering. And that's only one part of the book. So if he speaks about other players, if he speaks about anything else in the Chelsea dressing room, who knows what kind of damage that could do and who knows what kind of backlash from another player. So in your last question, you said, why do people speak sometimes? It can be as simple as this. It can be because Christian Pulisic wrote a book and unbeknown to him, he made a throwaway comment about Mason Mount, let's just say. And then Mount says, you know what? I'm going to go to the media and I'm going to say something about Pulisic, that he's not applying himself in training, that he's only interested in the World Cup. And then suddenly you get another newspaper headline, another negative angle. So we have to read the whole book and maybe then we'll understand a bit more the logic behind it and the timing behind it. But based on the excerpt, based on the title, based on what we've read so far, I don't like it. I think it lacks a bit of class and dignity and I don't see the need for it. And then if we look at what was said, of course, the dumbfounded thing has made the headlines. And I thought the other thing, which was a bit of a dig at Tuchel, was around that iconic goal on route to winning the Champions League and how Pulisic said that the untold story behind it was that when Rudiger had the ball and Pulisic was running to get in behind the back line, Tuchel was there on the touchline and Pulisic went right by him. And he says that Tuchel told him to stay in the pocket and not make the run. And Pulisic ignored him and scored one of his and Chelsea's biggest goals. And we all know how that story ended. So that is quite interesting. I'm sure there's tons of players, by the way, out there that have ignored their manager on the touchline. So I don't think that's indicative of a rift. But I think that when you read it on paper now, and if Tuchel was still there, it's still not massively helpful in the context of dressing room unity. So I'm genuinely interested to read the book. I've got a lot of Respect for Pulisic and his talent and his potential. I hope he stays at Chelsea and does really well. And I also think that he's going to be a talisman if he's fit and healthy and confident at the World Cup as well. But did it need the book now? And when you're weighing up quite a volatile situation at Chelsea... And when you're considering that his whole focus is on confidence, is on football, is on form for Chelsea and for the World Cup. And if he wants to leave Chelsea, it still goes hand in hand, because if he's in form, he'll get that move. Juventus, for example, considered him. He likes McKenney. He would have gone to Serie A, but an offer never came because he's short on form and confidence in front of goals. So all Christian Pulisic needs to do, if I was advising him anyway, is work hard, get into the team regularly, impress his new manager in Graham Potter, find a way to be a bit more clinical and consistent in front of goal. And then everything else in his career will take care of itself, particularly in the short term. If he wants a move, he'll get a move based upon his form. If it improves, if he wants to stay at Chelsea, if his form improves, he'll be happier. If he wants to lead the world cup, by example, on the football field, again, He needs to be hitting the ground running, entering the World Cup. And he doesn't have long left now because we come out of the international break and the World Cup is what? Only six weeks away. So the book in all of that context, retelling an old story, having a jibe, even if much of the book is just insightful and interesting and more personal and helps us understand better who Pulisic is. To me, none of that helps. Get your head down train day on day impress your new manager and do your talking with your feet not a computer or a pen that that's my perception but perhaps i'll read the book and have a different viewpoint after i've read it page for page when it comes out over the course of the coming weeks
1: and i i can't agree with you uh more ben it's it seems very commercial driven at this point of course like you're saying once the book comes out uh, and we get the context of the way things were certain things were said. Maybe our opinions change, but um, he saw what happened with Lukaku and ha- how that situation went over the course mm-hmm. of the year between Tuchel and and him and the club and the fans, most importantly, because Lukaku came in, the fans loved him. Up until that point, I think everyone was rooting for him, wanted him to succeed. And that the interview came out and I think fans kind of picked a side, not saying there were sides, but, kind of favor Tupul in that situation because it was uncalled for from Lukaku. And in this case, yes, Tupul's not there, but I know he's very near and dear to a lot of fans. And for a player like you rightly mentioned, who isn't playing much, who isn't contributing much, who isn't delivering much when he's given the opportunities, it seems a very wrong time to 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 be doing that. Again, our opinions may change, but book comes out, I believe, October 11th. Uh, which means, as you rightly pointed out, we'll get more out of this going into the World Cup the few weeks before the World Cup, which only adds to Pulisic being in the headlines. Hopefully he's fitting, uh, because he currently isn't. He's missing the game uh, for the U.S. men's national team. And so that all adds to it, keeps him in the news, which is good and bad, because like you said, do your talking on the pitch and let everything else take care of itself. Uh, ben, before we wrap it up, let's talk about... Um, The Women's Super League, I know CBS is covering them this season. Mm -hmm. Uh, Excellent coverage last weekend, which was the first weekend uh, for for that league. My team, Chelsea, went away to Liverpool. Liverpool have come up. um, Expecting a win, almost thought it would happen at halftime. Uh, We were one up. Liverpool, to their credit, turned it up. Um, Chelsea didn't, and they end up taking the win 2-1. There were some close calls with VAR. Uh, we won't get into that because that would take a whole separate episode. Uh, but your your thoughts on this upcoming season? There's a huge weekend this weekend coming up with the North London Derby, Chelsea play Man City. Uh, your thoughts on the on the WSL this season and the coverage from CBS? I, I'd love to hear more about that from from you.
0: Yeah, I think it was a great start to the WSL season, not for Chelsea, but we immediately can see the competitive nature and how open the race at the top and the bottom of the table is going to be. So that was the main thing that really resonated with me, particularly in the Aston Villa-Manchester City game, where Villa won by four goals to three. City fought back from 2-1 down at halftime. They got 3-2 ahead, and then Villa came back and ended up winning the game. And Rachel Daly scored a couple of goals in that game, having signed from the NWSL. So that one result is indicative for me that we are not going to see any or many easy games for the so-called bigger sides. And it also tells us that Manchester City, with a number of big departures, are a little bit weaker. But they've still got Lauren Hemp and Chloe Kelly, so they're going to be capable of goals. Can they keep those clean sheets, though, conceding? four goals away at Villa it was surprising when you consider that Aston Villa had never scored against Manchester City in the WSL before that game. And then they score four. So that was a big result for Villa. Congratulations to them. Highly disappointing from Manchester City's perspective. And then similar for Chelsea, really, 2-1 lost to newly promoted Liverpool. It's great to see Liverpool back up in the WSL a fair amount of criticism when they went down for under-investing in their women's team and now they're back in the WSL and they start by beating the defending champions and a nice American story in the form of striker Katie Stengel who is American who scored two penalties in that game and from Chelsea's perspective I think they'll just be very disappointed because they scored so early in the game through a Frank Kirby penalty and then there was a wonder goal from Kirby which was ruled out and If VAR had looked at that, if it was available, I think the goal would have stood. And if Chelsea had got a second goal, it could well have been a completely different game. But they didn't. And Liverpool, to their credit, fought back really well. So that's a statement win for Liverpool. And it's a wake-up call for Chelsea in many ways because they need to, first and foremost, make sure that they keep pace with Arsenal and that sounds like a strange thing to say but for those not familiar with the WSL there's only 12 teams in the league so you only played 22 games and the top teams historically like Chelsea and Arsenal and Manchester City when they win a title they only tend to lose a couple of games and Chelsea have already lost one so It's the first game of the season. You don't want to be overly dramatic. But if you started a Premier League season looking to win a title and you lost your opening game, you wouldn't care as much because you play 38 games. But in the Women's Super League, you only play 22. So you can't afford to lose more than two and three. And if one of those is to Liverpool, you know you've got to go away at City. You know you've got to go away at Arsenal. So it does just add that small amount of pressure On Chelsea, But I'm sure that Emma Hayes will see it more as a wake-up call. The other thing I wanted to add just on the Chelsea front is it was good to see Lauren James get a start. And I think that she could be in for a breakthrough season. And let's also see about the role of Beth England, who has been a mainstay at Chelsea and a source of goals. She replaced Lauren James late in the game, but hasn't had too much game time but a couple of seasons back was red hot and pretty much the player of the season. So there's depth there. There's goals there. And I would fully expect Chelsea to bounce back. And then if we look ahead to this forthcoming weekend within the WSL, we have Chelsea against Manchester City. And it's just a, big game for both teams because one of them is going to have dropped points in their first two games. And one of them, if it isn't drawn, is going to have lost their first two games. So then if Arsenal end up winning the North London derby, then you suddenly have a situation where either Chelsea or City, two contenders for the WSL, are massively on the back foot. And we might see a six-point gap as far as one of those teams are concerned so this game hasn't really come at the right time for either of these teams now having lost their opening game but Chelsea are at home and Manchester City are definitely weaker for me anyway than this time last season so I expect Chelsea to bounce back and I think if they do so they then have that momentum to put a run together and the good news from I think Chelsea's point of view is that they don't have that Arsenal game for the first time in the season until I believe mid-January. So they've got a real opportunity to put a run together and who knows where Arsenal or Chelsea will be by the time they play each other. So it's not doom and gloom, but it puts a very worrying complexion on Chelsea's WSL title defence if they were to lose to Manchester City now and Arsenal were to win the North London derby. Because as I've already said, historically within the WSL, you only really lose two, maximum three times en route to winning a title in a 22-game season. So if Chelsea were to start 0-2, Man City are still no pushover, then perhaps more alarm bells start to ring even this early in the season. And then from CBS's point of view, we're covering all the highlights, the games, the main talking points on our social media at CBS Sports Golasso. And each week, we've got a couple of select games that we pick, which predominantly air on Paramount+. Plus. But over the course of the season, you'll see some games on CBS Sports Network as well. And off the top of my head, I always have to look at the schedule because things have changed and tend to get rearranged due to TV. But I believe we've got the Chelsea Man City game on the Sunday, which is at 11 Eastern. And I think we've got the North London Derby as well, which takes place tomorrow at, I want to say, eight, 8.30 eight, eight, eight in the 30. morning. Yep, yep,
1: 8.30.
0: So those are the two to look out for. And across the season, we'll be covering the WSL in lots of different and exciting ways. It's not just about the games for us, and it's not only the ones we've got on our network. We'll have the ability to post and interact with all kinds of goals and stories and moments. You look at the Leicester Spurs game, which Spurs won, and there was a wonder goal from Ashley Neville from around the halfway line. And it's that kind of thing that we can obviously put on our social media. And then you've seen in the build ups to the season as well, we've had interviews with Leah Golton, with Lauren James, and with Chloe Kelly. And there's more to come as well. So we're all about the storytelling behind the league as well as just
1: the action and the goals and And we appreciate that, Ben. I know you've been uh, involved with the with the women's Super League for a while now, and it's good to see you uh, getting back into it with cbs and And just on the storytelling side, uh, we are at the Premier Chelsea involved with uh, the first ever fanzine magazine from the fans uh, for the women's uh, team for the Chelsea women's team, which is going to be called the King's Meadow Chronicle. So, uh, watch out for that, guys. It's going to be out um, later this season, and there's going to be a few more coming out over the course of the season. So uh, we'll be uh, we'll be contributing to that and uh, watching along on CBS here in the U.S. Um, ben, just to add a couple more things, like you were saying, uh, Chelsea lost two games last season uh, and won the title uh, by one point. I want to say, yep, it was fifty-six to fifty-five for Arsenal. Uh, we coincidentally lost the first game of last season two against Arsenal and went on to win win the Super League. So, uh, the hope is that that happens again this time around. Uh, and in the season before, we lost um, one game and won it by two points. So, like you you pointed out, uh, it's tight. It's going to be close. Uh, so, yeah. starting off at the second week with dropping points further will will put us up against a tough task of closing it down. Because, like you said, there's not that many games, and at some point. Uh, Chelsea are going to want to focus maybe a little bit more on that Champions League because that's the ultimate goal for the club so uh, it's going to be an interesting season and we'll be watching along like I said and and having you come on uh, from time to time to to give us an update and, and your view on it uh, but that wraps it up guys thank you very much for listening please continue to subscribe, like and follow us it's at the Premier Chelsea on all podcast providers Instagram and YouTube and on Twitter it's at Premier Chelsea Uh, And we will be back next week with the preview for Crystal Palace on the men's side. Uh, But until then, stay safe and up to Chelsea. Hey, guys, the Premier Chelsea is sponsored by Kickoff Coffee. They are a top
0: quality artisanal roasted coffee. In other words, they're Champions League winner and Premier League winner every single time. They deliver fresh bags directly to your home. So you don't have to go to a coffee shop and pick up something. And the best part about them is every bag gives back to soccer charities. 10%
1: of the proceeds go to organizations that use soccer to promote youth social development in the underserved areas. Use our code TPCOFFEE15 to get 15% off your order. You can order at kickoffcoffeeco.com or check out the links on our social media. Thanks.